Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride Podcast. My name is Craig Dalton. I'm your host, and I'm going to be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. In the In the Dirt episodes, Randall and I take an opportunity to catch up on everything going on in gravel cycling, everything you need to know in between our long-form interviews on the Gravel Ride Podcast. This week's broadcast is brought to you by Therabody. You may remember Therabody from the Theragun massage gun that really revolutionized recovery for gravel cyclists. But this week, we're here to talk to you about something completely next level. We're talking about Therabody's revolutionary new recovery air jet boots. If you're like me over the years, you've seen these pneumatic compression boots underneath pro cyclists after stages of the Tour de France or big gravel events. And I've always been curious what that experience would be like. But every time I looked into them, they seemed not only expensive, but incredibly overbuilt. They're attached to sort of something that looked like a car battery. You had wires everywhere. It just seemed overly complicated. As you know, on the podcast, we've been talking about recovery quite a bit lately, and it's driven by my own personal need. I found as as I get older as an athlete, I just can't recover as quickly, and I need to basically do everything I can to make sure my body's in tip-top shape and able to get back out on the bike. So I was super curious when Therabody came out with the Recovery Air Jet Boots. It's quite a bit more affordable than the original pneumatic compression boots that were out on the market and in a form factor that can't be beat. Recovery Air Jet Boots are the world's most advanced pneumatic compression system ever created. For years, runners and gravel cyclists and everyone who spends hours on their feet have had to suffer through leg pains and aches after a hard day. Clinically proven treatments like the compression boots pro athletes have always been using have always been out of reach. Recovery Air is a groundbreaking pressure massage system for everybody, anywhere. With Therabody's exclusive fast flush technology, Recovery Air flushes out metabolic waste more fully and brings back fresh blood to your legs three times faster than the speed of competition. Faster cycles means faster recovery, so you don't have to wait for the legs to feel great. Therabody's Recovery Air Jet Boots are first of its kind. They're truly wireless for anywhere on-the-go recovery, boosting circulation, and radically reducing muscle soreness. And thanks to Recovery Air's super intuitive, easy-to-use, one-touch controls, recovering faster is a breeze. I've had a couple of recovery sessions with the jet boots already, and I'm trying to figure out what's the right way to describe it to the listener. You've got an individual boot on each leg that goes all the way up to your upper thigh. As the pneumatic air moves through each boot, you feel your leg kind of compress tightly like a nice massage as it rolls through a process. You can set through multiple time sessions how long you want to be in the product, how long you have for recovery. But I got out of it after a 20-minute session, and the legs felt good. So I'm looking forward to doing more punishing rides, coming back and getting these jet boots on my body. To find out more, just visit therabody.com slash thegravelride. You can get Therabody Recovery Air today, starting at just $699, or as low as $59 a month with a firm. Plus, with Recovery Air's 60-day money-back guarantee and free shipping, there's absolutely no risk to giving it a try at home. Again, that's therabody.com slash the gravel ride. With that business out of the way, let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, Randall, how you doing? Well, a little bit under the weather here in Boston, but uh, hopefully we'll be recovered before I head out your way in a couple of days. Yeah, I'm how excited you? to see you. You got to get over this cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, and actually hoping to see a lot of, or at least a few of our listeners as well. We got Sea Otter coming up. Yeah, it's a good place to start. Yeah, so we're we're getting we're both of us are going to be at Sea Otter this year, which is exciting. I think we did Sea Otter together two years ago. That's on two or three years ago. Yeah, whenever you know, in that 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 innocent pre-COVID era. That's right. <laughs> when that's I was right. still living in the Bay Area. Yeah, for the listener that may not be in the region or may not have heard of Sea Otter, it's actually an event that's been going on in the Monterey Bay Peninsula area since 1991. Mountain bike yeah. started out, I think, as a mountain bike festival, had added on road racing criteriums. They had a cyclocross race at one point, observed trials, like you name it, if mm-hmm. it's done on two wheels, they've been doing it in, at the Sea Otter Classic for years. It's also become, I believe, the the most important trade show in North America with the you know with the folding of the um, oh well, interbike, yeah. And uh, in fact, I've always felt that it was a, a much more enjoyable experience than interbike because you have this kind of festival environment. So people are there. Uh, you have general audience, general riders who are there to participate in the events and to you know meet up with each other and to walk around and see the booths and so much more you know rider friendly and so on so yeah i'm excited it's to get also, out there it's been a long time it's also really interesting to me to see the merging of all the different cycling cultures because you've got a big mm. downhill contingent and dual slalom contingent with their slam seats and 10 inch travel bikes and full faced helmets and then you've got like the legion criterium squad rolling around doing mm-hmm. the you know the circuit race yeah, and I, I'm not sure, I would imagine the, the UCI cross-country uh, race is still going on there. That was the only time I ever lined up at a, at a UCI level race, which was a cool experience. So you get Quite to see some of the international level pros. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's right at the Laguna Seca Raceway. So it some of the, I think a lot of the courses finish on the car racing, motorcycle racing track, which is kind of a cool yep. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this so, year they've um, added, this is the kickoff of the Lifetime Grand Prix, which is a six or eight race series with a $250,000 prize. So I know a lot of professional athletes are sort of jazzed and keying in on this. And it's a, don't need to get into the series and I, I'll get someone from Lifetime on to talk about it if you haven't heard about it already. But what's interesting to me is they're doing mountain bike racing and gravel racing as part of the same series. So it's really, mm. I, in my mind, ideally pushing athletes to have capabilities in both domains. I mean, there does seem to be a very natural kind of merging of, of these two disciplines in that gravel bikes have gotten ever more capable. And cross-country bikes have actually gotten radically more capable too. You've, you've transitioned to down-country, cross-country courses have gotten more technical. And so you know everything is kind of shifting a little bit. I certainly love the, the, mount, the underbiked mountain bike experience on a gravel bike. They haven't made this rule, but I would kind of love it if they forced the athletes to race one bike. So pick your poison, gravel bike Mm. on the cross country courses, cross country bike on the gravel courses. You got to decide at the beginning of the season. I mean, honestly, I remember I've done sea otter twice and I remember one year they had the, the long course and on the long course, there was only one section that I recall even really requiring suspension. And so if I had had a gravel bike at the time, I probably would have crushed it 
everyone was riding flat bar, <laughs> you know, suspended mountain bikes. And there was just one kind of breaking bump chundry section that I recall. And then the other year, they had it such that it went through Laguna Seca like five or six times. They were trying to make it very spectator friendly. And in that case, like even more so, because there's just, you know, you're spending so much time on the road that whatever time you lose on that, you know, slightly chundry section, yeah. you're more than making up for. Yeah, that um, might have been my jam as well, because my Achilles heel was always climbing. I could never climb with the best of them. I'm a decent descender. So yeah, the gravel bike probably would have helped me stay closer to the front of those races. So, and you're going to be doing the the Envy sponsored gravel ride on Saturday, right? Do yeah, on Saturday. Yeah. So there's a couple, for anybody in attendance, there's a few gravel, like casual gravel rides, and there's also a gravel event on Sunday. So definitely bring your bike and enjoy some of that gravel. So let's talk about the event that we're getting together. Yeah, so we're excited. You know, we're going to get together the ridership community and the Gravel Ride podcast community and the Thesis Bike community, along with our friends over at Scratch Labs. Mm -hmm. So Scratch yeah, has so got a booth, and we'll get, we'll, we're meeting up over there at 3 p.m. on Saturday, April 9th. We'll probably be hanging out there for a while. So if you can't get there right at 3, definitely stop by later in the day. But we'll have... Some, some beverages, some music. We'll have some special guests, uh, a few athletes. The famed rice cake maker, Alan Lim, who's on the podcast <laughs> before. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Uh, Alan Lim. One of his threads of fame is rice cake cooker. I think he also has been involved in training some, some elite athletes, and he might have started Scratch as well. But definitely rice cake maker is probably his, his biggest claim to fame there. And then we'll have a raffle and an exciting product line reveal which I'll just leave it at that at this point. Anyone who's in the ridership will probably know what I'm talking about here because I've uh, dropped a few hints there. But I'll be really excited to get the do the first pre-launch reveal of this new line that we've been working on for some time. Yeah, I'm excited for you to talk about that publicly as someone who's sort of been in the background, just hearing whispers of what you're doing and, and then starting to hear more specifics from you directly. It's super exciting. And like, I appreciate how much you put into the space and how much thought you put into these products that you bring to the world. Thanks, bud. Yeah. And I definitely feel grateful to have kind of the one, like the support of a community. They provided an immense amount of, of very useful feedback in, in the you know development and validation process. And then also just really great team and, and business partners and so on that we've been co-developing this with. So more on this in uh, future episodes. We'll do a one-on-one -on -one episode where we nerd out about how things are developed. But yeah, come visit yeah. us at Sea Otter, three o'clock on yeah, Saturday at the Scratch Labs booth. Super excited to to run into any listeners and ridership members out there. Really, like it's I feel like it's been a long time coming for us to do a little get together. And hopefully if trends continue, we can start doing some of the ridership group rides around the world. Exactly. Yeah, I'll be starting some in the New England area. And I'm looking forward to flying out uh, again to the Bay Area to do a big event with you maybe sometime this summer. Yeah, that sounds right great. around Mount Tam where we used to ride together so much. 100%. So last episode of In the Dirt, we were talking very specifically about a new custom bike project that I've been working on for the listener, just to bring you up to speed. I got a fit in January and it's just started to highlight some of the things, some of the challenges I've been having with my body in riding the bike. And this is not something new. I've, I sort of experienced this early on in my cycling career. And at one point I had a custom Brent Steelman road bike made for me. He's a pretty storied Northern California builder, probably best known for his cyclocross work. But anyway, I had the custom bike experience, but it was, it was kind of funny. At that time, the one thing that nagged me, and I realize now that 
this is sort of not the right way to even be thinking about this particular problem. But every road bike I, I ever got in front of was a 5656. So 56 C tube, 56 top tube. And the one thing that mm -hmm. felt to me like it didn't fit well was that 56 top tube. So I said, Brent, do whatever you want. I just want a 55 centimeter top tube. <laughs> and it did solve the problem to a degree, but it wasn't really the solution to the problem, but it did feel amazing to get on that bike for the first time. When you're also kind of hearkening back to the days when when we talked about you know seat tubes and top tubes as a primary you know driver of, of frame fit because they they were always coming in at roughly the same angles versus nowadays they're coming in at all different sorts of angles with compact geos and so on so but the 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 gist of like your bike was too long you're you're yeah. a pretty leggy guy so that's that's really interesting you say that so <laughs> was it not, not not the fact that I'm a leggy guy and thanks for noticing that but more about <laughs> The sort of, is it, are you saying the sort of that geometry back in that era or where the tubes were coming in, there just wasn't a lot of variability. So the concepts of stack and reach weren't necessarily in bike design vernacular. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you generally the top tube would be, you know, relatively flat. And then okay. you know, at some point you started seeing more compact geos where that top tube was sloped and that had various, various benefits in terms of standover height and you know, potentially, you know, frame stiffness and so on. But it also meant that, you know, your seat tube and your top tube were not really particularly good proxies for how the bike would fit. And so we need a new proxy and that's where stack and reach came into play. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you can imagine like, obviously like with mountain bikes having super sloping top tubes and all kinds of things like that, that stack and reach, like you had to come up with some sort of measurement that people could hang their hat on. Yeah. 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 So with the bike that we're, we've designed for you now, I mean, you have, remind me, you're just five, nine, five, 10. Yeah. Just five, nine and a half, five, nine and a half. And I'm yeah. five eleven, and you and I run the same saddle height and I run a pretty high and forward saddle height too. And so you were on the medium, our, our medium, I ride our, our large, your OB1. And one yeah. of the things that you, that, you know, I always noticed with you is you always had your, your stem kind of as high as possible and flipped upward and so on. And so this new build is going to, uh, really address, you know, first and foremost, the stack issues you've wanted a higher bar for some time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that was the most sort of visceral thing I had after this fit. And it's something that was very, it was known to me and my body. Like I've, I've lost flexibility. I never had a ton of flexibility. And the fitter said, well, you've, you know, the position of your saddle height versus your bar height is that of a pro tour road cyclist. You know, I had this mm. like eight, eight millimeter drop or something. And he's like, we really want to get you more around four. So it was, it was interesting. And, and I encourage people to go back to episode 28 if you're interested. And I don't purport to believe that you care about my personal fit, but I'm, I'm trying to eke this out with Randall in both these two episodes just to give the listener something to think about as they go forward in their cycling career, because there's, there's tons of things you can do around your existing bike to modify the fit. But yes. I came to some limitations because I'd already configured my thesis. I'd already cut the, the steerer tube of the fork. I couldn't bring the bars up any further unless I had an obnoxiously jacked up stem. So I came to the conclusion like, Hey, given this opportunity, why don't, why don't I look at fabricating a, a bike specific to my needs? So we had episode 28, which is the last in the dirt episode. And we talked a little bit about bike geo calculator and it was pretty easy. Like it's a great tool. And I saw 
lines where the new frame would be. And, and I looked at that, that stack height and the higher head tube. And I was like, great, this is going to fit. But then as we worked with the builder and got into CAD, there was all these things that have just taken a lot of time to muddle through. And part of it is fabricating with metal versus carbon. Part of it is like things that all things aren't equal. You really have to think about what, what is your North star in the fit and work around that versus what is any particular tube length or dimension. And then you have parts availability, right? So you want to achieve something, but the, you can't find a part that allows you to achieve it. Even though it exists, it doesn't exist in the time frame that you need it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So, I mean, a couple of the areas we've been keying in on, I mentioned, I think in the last episode, like I had this just desire to be able to, to accommodate as big a tire as possible. But then when, when you talk about the practicality of welding the rear end, all of a sudden a bunch of things come into play because you can have a really long stay to accommodate that. But I didn't really want a really long stay. I'd been pretty darn comfortable on my last two bikes with a 420 20 millimeter seat stay. And like the idea of going out to 445 or something like that just didn't sit well with me. Yeah. 420 chain stay. And yeah, and it yeah. just makes it so that the, the front end doesn't want to come up as much. It, you know, it slows the handling. It's a longer wheelbase, but you know, it's appropriate to go, it can be appropriate to go longer for more of a dirt focused machine versus a, a, a one bike that is also being asked to be a spirited road bike. Yeah. That's kind of the direction that we went with this thing. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Like there comes a decision point in any gravel cyclist's life when you're purchasing a new bike to just think about like, where do you fall on that spectrum? And when I look at the riding, when I look at what I was conceiving of with my thesis, it's like, I want something that's zippy on the road and super capable off-road, but can kind of slot that ground between. But the reality is, you know, my riding is 95% off-road. Yeah. 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 And you already have a thesis that you're, you've, so yeah, this isn't adding to your stable. Exactly. The thesis isn't going anywhere. So while this bike may, the new bike may rarely get road tires on it, the thesis will have both road. And I still think that thesis is an amazing like race bike and it's been so good for me. It's so capable. I'm excited to have, I mean, it's just an absolute luxury to be able to have two bikes in the, in the garage. Yeah. But the, the added capability of this new machine is, is definitely going to be, you know, meaningful, like that extra tire clearance. So maybe we start there. So this tire clearance for like full tire clearance. So at least six millimeters all around for 650 by two front and rear. And you could probably squeeze something a little bit bigger up front. We were fortunate in that we were able to find a fork that had the offset that we wanted. Specifically, we reached out to Gerard Bruman over at Open Cycle and he had some U-turn forks kicking around. So that's a 50 mil offset and also a 395 axle to crown. So just throwing numbers out there, what does this mean? So axle to cr- offset is um, basically the distance from the axle from the the line that goes through the steer tube. So it's going to be offset, you know, the axle is offset forward from that. And more offset is going to make the steering more responsive, but it's also going to increase your your front center, the bottom bracket to the front axle to reduce risk of toe overlap. And that was a, that was a concern given that you're, you're wanting a, a shorter bike that's fitting bigger 700 C tires. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also, so, so that, 
Does wheelbase come into play with those dimensions as well? The overall wheelbase? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, well, so with the offset, so we had the increased offset, which with the same head angle, as you increase offset, it's going to decrease trail. And, you know, the, the less trail you have, the, the snappier the handling is. That in turn allowed us to slacken out the head angle a little bit without radically slowing down the handling. So we went from a 72 degree head angle on your thesis, which is more of a like an endurance road and a, a more kind of racy gravel front end to a 71.2, which is still actually on the, the sportier side, especially for this new class of gravel bikes that have seemingly gone towards, you know, even slacker, even longer. And overall, we got the the front center up, you know, 18 millimeters. And so those those taller 700C tires that you might run are not going to be an, an issue for you in terms of a toe overlap. You're also going right. with 2.5 millimeter shorter cranks, which helps as well. And that that opened up another opportunity with the bottom bracket height. Yeah. So before we get into BB height, you know, it was interesting really digging into the fork situation. Again, a lot of times your bike, well, all the time, your bike comes with a fork and you don't really think about all these things. But once we were looking at, hey, what fork partner can we bring into the mix? All of a sudden, a lot of variables came into play in terms of mm-hmm. like the rake of the bike or the rake of the fork, like all these different things we started having to consider. And what was the effect on toe overlap? What was the effect on like what size, size tire are they designed on accommodating? So it's really like, I don't know, a sink of like a week to figure out a, what do we want? And B, who actually manufactures a fork that has those correct dimensions? And that we can get in a reasonable time frame. And th- yeah. And then to, f- to further that, you know, everybody knows I'm suspension curious. I've got one bike in the garage right now with a front mm-hmm. suspension fork on it from my friends at RockShock. And I do imagine playing around with that on this bike. But as we've mm-hmm. spoken about previously, probably in an in the dirt episode, and certainly when I dug into it with our friends at RockShock and SRAM, you know, if you put one of these suspension bi- forks on the bike, it's going to bring the entire bike up because that 30 to 40 millimeters of travel has got to come from somewhere. So we had to think through, okay, if we have a 395 axle to crown length of the rigid fork, what happens when that's 420? Yeah, or 425 in the case of the RockShox fork. Uh, and then they have two different offsets. And what we came to is, well, um, you know, that 30 millimeter of difference means that your front end is going to come up, right? And so to get the same exact position, you would have to, you know, shift your saddle forward and you would have to, you know, adjust your stem height and so on. Or you could just make it so that, you know, your your position in with the rigid fork is a little bit more aggressive and then you're just you know allowing that that slightly more you know lean back position slightly more upright position when you have the fork and in terms of the handling characteristics and so on they actually change uh, the position and handling characteristics change in a way that is appropriate for a bike with the added capability of a short travel suspension fork and so it's it's kind of you know not really a problem and we have we don't have a an adjustable suspension Sorry, we don't have an adjustable geometry with that rigid fork, which is something I'm a big fan of, but we're getting adjustable geo with the swapping of the forks in your case, and we designed accordingly. Yeah, it's super interesting. And going back to my conversation with Chris Mandel from SRAM RockShock, he said the same thing. Like it was it was really early on. They had literally just launched that fork, that fork and I was able to, to spend some time on it before the launch. And he, he said, 
Now I put this on a bike that wasn't specifically geo corrected, but I felt like it was okay. He's like, I've spent months and months and months on this thing. And it just modified the geometry in a way that made sense for the new way that I was going to be riding the bike with a suspension fork on it. Yeah. And you know, you, it is useful if you're considering adding a suspension fork to your existing bike to say, throw it, throw it in a tool like bike geocalc. So take your current geometry for your bike and, and put it into that, that tool and then set the settings so that the frame rotates when you change the axle, to crown, and it'll tell you how the other parameters change. And that can also inf- not only inform you in terms of how, how the geo will change, but then also how the handling might change which would help you decide, say, what fork offset you want, because, you know, RockShox offers two different offsets on those forks. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll yeah. have plenty of room on the steerer tube, as well as the ability to flip my stem to make adjustments, accommodating that to get the position right. And again, just make make the, that delta between 395 and 425 feel slighter than it actually is. Well, and it's it's small enough where I do think that it's quite likely that you can get a slightly more aggressive but still upright position with a rigid fork and then a slightly less aggressive, more upright position with the suspension fork that you know feels good in both of those different applications and feels appropriate for those. So I don't suspect that you're going it's I don't think it's highly likely that you're going to need to move around much. And yeah. this actually gets into a conversation I'm looking forward to having with Lee McCormick at some point when we bring him on the podcast, which is you know, talking about how, you know, we've talked about stack and reach and how these are really important measurements for determining fit. But in turn, in as a rider, like the big thing that matters is like the distance from your crank spindle to where your hands are. And then you have an, you know, an ang so that hypotenuse between, you know, the the stack figure to the grips and the reach figure to the grips. The hypotenuse is actually the 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 pure number, and then the angle associated with that that hypotenuse. But that that the length of that hypotenuse actually shouldn't change from bike to bike. So whether it's a road bike or a, a mountain bike or so on, it should be consistent. Yeah. And then it's the angle of that that from yeah. bike to bike. And so if you think about you know the front end coming up, well that 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 distance is staying the same. It's just the angle that's increasing a little bit. Right. Yep. Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. You know, I love, I love most of my bikes are set up identically so that basically if I have my eyes closed, I know exactly where to fall and hit the bar. And it's so mm-hmm. great that my like mountain bike and, and road bike can feel like that same position. Yeah. Yeah. And even better if you can get say the same crank lengths on the bikes, the same, you know, pedal positioning, you know, stance and the like yeah. on the bikes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I'm a little bit afield from that, but this is the most bike geekery, by the way, that I've ever <laughs> gone through. And it's, I mean, part of it's been driving me mad because I really want to consummate this frame and say the design's done. And I do think like if we're, if we're not at the finish line today, we're in the, we're in the, the final sprint. We've seen the flam rouge and we're, we're coming to the finish line. Thank God. But a couple other things I wanted to just quiz you on before we get to that point. So mm-hmm. there was also the question about BB drop and it was another yeah. one that was like, BB drop. I've never thought about that. Just allowed yeah. the frame, you know, the, the the production frame builder to think about that. But now that we had to consider it and we could do whatever we wanted, let's talk about the movement on that and what's the rationale and and just what's the takeaway for the listener around BB drop. Yeah. So BB, you can think of BB drop uh, as you have the 
the vertical distance between the height of the axles and the height of the bottom bracket, the center of the bottom bracket spindle. So the bottom bracket spindle is going to be below the two axles, right? And the greater, the more below the two axles it is, you know, ceteris paribus, the more stable the bike is going to be, the more sitting so into the bike you're going to be. To, so to visualize that, if I'm, if I'm sort of the listener and I'm thinking about my bike, I've got my two axles on my wheels and I'm thinking yep. about how far below that axle line the bottom bracket sits. Exactly, exactly. And so with like old school cyclocross geometries, the bottom, the BB drop tended to be pretty high, you know, 65 versus say, you know, your thesis OB1 is 73 and your OB1 only accommodates up to uh, a 700 by 40 tire, but it's really optimized around 700 by 30 and 650 by 47, which is like a 700 by 28. And so, you know, it's, there's, it's you get more stability, but there's greater risk of pedal strikes as you drop the beep. Now with your new bike, you know we started with your your thesis as like a starting point because you really liked that geometry, and we saw well you're going to be optimizing this bike for running with bigger and and thus taller tires, a bigger radius from the center of the the axle to the outside of the tire, and so you can you can drop the BB further, get that added stability without increasing risk of pedal strikes. And in fact, we also went with a 2.5 millimeter shorter crank for you. And so you're actually going to have more clearance above the ground with those bigger tires, even though we dropped the BB down to improve stability. So, you know, that that was kind of a very natural thing. And you see this trend in general on this newer slate of gravel bikes that are being optimized for higher volume 700 tires versus the more one bike type bikes like like the Thesis or the the Cervelo Aspero that are designed to be used effectively with road you know seven up to 700 by 30 which is you know a smaller radius so does it feel like you're sort of sitting more in the bike when you have more BB drop exactly versus on top yeah. of it yeah. 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 And I, I, you were saying about cyclocross bikes having a 65 millimeter drop, presumably that's because they're, they're doing a lot of things that require clearance, bunny hopping barriers and things like that. Yeah. Concerns about, you know, pedal strikes essentially as they're, you know, going over different obstacles though, even those bikes with the advent of gravel, you've seen those bottom brackets come down because there's no reason. I mean, I would argue there's no reason to have a dedicated cyclocross bike unless you're I mean, even if you're an elite cyclocross athlete, you can still ride on, take the specialized crux as an example, that bike fits 650 by 47, right? So it's not constrained to the 700 by what, 33 that the UCI maxes out cyclocross tires for. So even that bike is, is, is really a gravel bike that, that people are, are using in that discipline. So it doesn't need a dedicated bike anymore. So those, the days of high bottom brackets is, have, have thankfully gone away. Yeah, for the most I part. think that makes sense. Yeah, certainly no reason for the average athlete to own a dedicated cyclocross bike if you've got a gravel bike in the closet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The other uh, thing we had to consider was just cable routing as well. Mm -hmm. And again, this is like maybe on a carbon bike, you make a couple ports and you know how to seal them pretty easily. And if you use them, you use them. If you don't, you don't. But when you're talking about a metal bike, all of a sudden you, you've got, okay, either I'm going to externally route everything, which I don't like the look of, and that seems old school, or I'm going to actually have to, to drill and, and sort of weld holes into yeah. various parts of the frame. And that was, again, another consideration. Well, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to commit mm -hmm. to wireless, which is 
like a very viable option these days, or am I going to get, you know, have four different ports drilled into this frame? And I opted to go the wireless route. Yeah. And I think that that was a smart way to go. The, you know, especially if you're already going the, you already kind of, unless you're going to do external cabling, internal cabling on say like a steel or titanium bike is going to be such that like you're going to have some sharp angles going through the frame, especially, you know, where that down tube is meeting the, the bottom bracket shell. You know, you don't have these big, these big tubes and these big open spaces like you can mold into a carbon frame. And so there's going to be sharp angles. There's going to be sharp surfaces that need to be machined. It's just harder to do. It's really hard to do good, clean mechanical routing internally through a metal frame unless it's say something like a specialized smart weld aluminum frame where they're hydroforming those those tubes to get a more carbon shape. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and when you consider adding in which was a necessity for me a dropper post yet yeah. another hole yet more routing. So, yeah, I'm committing to going full wireless including the dropper post mm-hmm. on this bike so I'll I'll just have the rear brake cable routed through the frame and and that's it. Yeah. I think too, that's going to, I mean, given that this is your adventure bike, it's just that much less to deal with as well when you're taking the bike apart to throw in your case to, you know, bring on a plane. So I think that wireless can make sense. Just bring an extra battery. Yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. My, my contact at SRAM, I went riding with him on Tam, gosh, probably four or five months ago at this point. And, uh, his battery ran out, but he, he just keeps a spare in his seat bag. Yeah. And if you're going with a one by setup too, like you have those two coin cells, which are very lightweight in the levers. So if one of them dies, you still get the other one. You could swap it over. Yeah. Yeah. The cool thing about the RockShox C-Post is that you can steal the battery pack from there and use it in your derailleur Yeah, if you need be, because yeah. they're, all, they're all changeable. Not to, not to then, have too then, big of a segue. You have to make, well, then you have to make the difficult decision of like, do I care about gearing or the dropper post more? I guess it depends on the terrain. <laughs> there yeah. are some cases where I would I would sacrifice the derailleur battery to keep the dropper post going. Yeah, who knows? If I was on the top of TAM, <laughs> I might, you know, if I was riding up, switch the battery to have gears on the way up and then switch it to the dropper on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You just made me think about I literally just packed my thesis in uh, my post carry bag for an air flight t- tomorrow. And there's always a little bit of Jenga with the cables to kind of move everything around and get it in there. The bag's so well designed. And fortunately with, with my these medium thesis, I can just slam the seat. I don't even have to take the seat out and get mm-hmm. it all in that mm-hmm. bag and um, hopefully continue to elude all airline fees. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, um, well, thank you for think- walking me. Th- yeah, no, I think we've covered a, a good deal about the frame between this episode and the last episode. And again, I hope this conversation gives you a little bit of inside baseball about how frames are designed. If you are looking to get a custom frame done, it's important to have a builder who's willing to work with you. And in my case, just being someone who's just not in the weeds on all these minute dimensions and angles, just someone who's patient and will uh, walk you through what needs to be done. I'm lucky to have both the builder and Randall to help me out. Yeah. It's it definitely, you know, the value of working with a good builder in, in significant part comes on the front end and really trying to dial exactly what you want and, and, you know, having that output on the other end. So, and as I, 
as I think about your journey with thesis and the idea of designing, was it five frame sizes? Well, so in our case, we went with we went with an open we went with an open mold frame and then made modifications from there. So yeah. we used the existing tooling. So we were fortunate to be able to find a frame with, you know, the vast majority of the features we wanted and the exact geometry we wanted. And then we added the features and reinforcements from there. So with the next gen frame beginning development of this is this is a ways out. That'll be a full ground up exercise. Yeah, it's just, I imagine it's so challenging to sort of figure out the sizes. Obviously, you're matching what the market trends are in terms of how the bikes are performing and what they're intended for, but just like the basics around stack and reach to try to find those sweet spots to make sure with the limited amount of customizability, i.e., you know, your stem length, the, your, your stack above the head tube, making that fit as many people as possible. It just seems to be a challenge. Yeah. And it's, it's even more so with a material like carbon where you're, you know, essentially you're, you're creating these molds that are quite expensive and then that's set in stone. If you want to evolve your metal uh, tube to tube constructed frames geometry over time, you know, that that's, you just change the jig and you change the mitering specifications and, and yeah. you're good to go. Carbon, it's a whole new tool. So you better get it right out the gate. <laughs> so true. Well, thanks for all the time, my friend. This coming weekend, hopefully, I know I'll be seeing you and hopefully we'll be seeing a bunch of listeners over there at, at Sea Otter. Sea Otter, three o'clock on Saturday at the Scratch Labs booth. Yeah, we'll see you there. All right. Hope to see some folks there. That's going to do it for this week's edition of In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. Thank you for spending a little bit of your week with us. If you're going to be at Seattle, definitely come find us at the Scratch Labs booth at 3 p.m. on Saturday. Huge thanks to Therabody for sponsoring this episode. Please visit therabody.com slash the gravel ride for that special offer around the recovery air jet boots. If you have any feedback for Randall or myself, feel free to visit us at the ridership. That's www.theridership.com. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, please head over to buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>